uh, let me, in, in light of that, invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we're going to be here for, uh, for quite a few weeks, a couple months, working our way through this book. And for those of you who have been around uh, for a number of years, you might remember we actually preached through this book in 2020. And uh, I just i am going to give you a little free information. There's a very good chance we're just going to preach this book every four years when an election cycle comes around. Because uh, quite honestly, I think this is such an unbelievably important and timely word for Christians uh, being reminded who we are primarily and that our primary devotion is to Christ uh, and that our primary allegiance is to him and his kingdom. And, and that's just a refresher that we need often. So uh, this might come around every, every couple years, just a little bit of a heads up. Uh, but imagine... <clears throat> And, and, you know, feel free literally to close your eyes and try to imagine, take a little bit of a creative license this morning. Uh, imagine that you were a, a Roman citizen uh, in uh, what is present-day Turkey. You grew up in Asia Minor. You grew up in a city uh, and, and a culture and a family uh, that had no understanding of creator God, the God of the Bible. You had no regard for him. You had no desire to obey any laws of his because you had not even uh, probably read or heard them. Uh, that was just kind of the culture that you you grew up in. Uh, there was a lot of partying that went on. There was a lot of drinking that went on, a lot of uh, just kind of generic sin, a lot of friends and family. It was just the norm to be, uh, to be sleeping around. It was the norm in business to kind of lie, cheat, and steal and uh, do what you need to do to get a little bit more, to get a little bit ahead. Uh, adultery was not really a big deal. It was just kind of the norm of your culture. Um, there was idolatry uh, all around you. There were perhaps pagan temples and places where you could go uh, and worship other gods and uh, all sorts of idolatry in your culture and just greed and all of these things were just normal. That's what people did. That's the, that was the cultural norms. That was the norms of your city, even your family. Just everybody was really good at sinning and we would describe that as somewhat of a pagan society, which would have been the case uh, for, for this area. And let's just say uh, that you were brought up in that culture, um, but then someone comes to town uh, and they start telling you some things that you've never heard. Uh, someone comes to town uh, and they begin talking about Jesus, uh, talking about his life, his ministry, the impact that he made in Jerusalem just a few decades ago. Uh, they start talking about him living a perfect, sinless life. Uh, they start talking about Jesus dying a death that he didn't deserve. He was innocent, yet was treated as guilty. Uh, they start talking about uh, some of the things Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and the gospel of grace and that God forgives because Jesus died for sin. They talk about the crucifixion. They talk about the resurrection. This person comes in and shares this story that Jesus was so powerful, he actually came back from the dead. And that was such a, a truthful moment in history that he convinced hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that he was dead and alive. And this movement now has spread all across the Roman Empire where people believe Jesus was God, um, that he came to establish a new kingdom, and, and that he had given an invitation to sinners. And, and you begin to feel something maybe working in your heart thinking, goodness, I'm a sinner. Maybe there's some things that are really broken in me. And, and you believe, right? you believe the gospel that is shared. You believe this message that is preached uh, perhaps by Paul, maybe by someone else. Uh, and you, you, you kind of sense this thing happening inside. 
that you now have a new heart, you're a, a different person, and that slowly begins working itself out and changing what you do, starts inside but works outside, uh, begins to change how you feel, what you think, how you behave, uh, and you start thinking about what, what you used to do. And, and you start thinking about what you used to love, what you used to hate, and realize that everything in your past has got to be reconfigured and thought about again in light of this new king that you're devoted to. You realize, like, I can't just try to force Jesus into these old modes of thinking. I need to completely start again and rethink what it means to follow Jesus. And you realize some people in your community had done the same thing. They had heard the message they had believed, and you gather together, and you take some copies of, uh, of what uh, the apostles had already written and uh, some scrolls from the Old Testament. You begin to gather together, and you're reading and you're uh, praying together and you realize that together as a little family that you're growing, that, that this change that happened inside of each one of you is manifesting itself externally, changing your behaviors, changing what you do. And then you find out that Paul would refer to that as an ecclesia, uh, or, or, or that word is what we would use to call a church, a church family. That word means someone that is called out and then you begin asking questions like I've been, obviously God has done something in my heart and he's called me out, but what has he called me out of? Because I'm still in my family, I'm still at my same job, I'm still in my same culture, I'm, I'm still in the society that is a very godless and pagan society, I'm still here physically, but I've been called out in a way. And then you begin to feel that. You feel that because you are moving away from the culture and things are changing, uh, that your friends and family uh, are not real excited about that. You begin to feel some of this uh, pressure that you have a new identity, new values, uh, new loves, and that begins to be costly. Uh, friends begin to pull away from you. Uh, people that used to be close to you are no longer close to you, or worst case, maybe they begin to mock you and call you names and say that you're uh, hateful, say that you're judgmental because your life is different, you're changing. Uh, you begin to suffer. Some of the friends in your uh, ecclesia begin to suffer. Uh, some of them lose their jobs because they had moved away from the cultural norms. Um, some of them had lost spouses. Uh, they begin to lose positions in their community. They lose their business. Some lose their homes, many lose their friends. What you realize is that over time, uh, the more you have become like Jesus, the less you are like your original culture. Uh, the, the more you learn to live like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the less you fit in to the kingdom of your birth. Uh, the closer you get to Jesus, the further away you get from your society, the more devoted you get to Christ, the more persecuted and alienated you become. Uh, really what's happening is the more you're being fashioned for a different kingdom, the less you fit in uh, to this current kingdom. And you feel like an exile, like you're just out of place. And, uh, and perhaps you begin to ask some questions like, is this, is this normal? Am I doing something wrong? Um, because I listened to the, you know, the televangelist, right? Because we all know there was a lot of televangelists in the first century. You, you listen to the televangelist, like, well, no, he, no if, you, if you're doing this right, if, you're, if you love Jesus and you have enough faith, you're not going to have any problems. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise, all these things. And you're like, that's not my story. That's none of our stories. The more we're like Jesus, the more persecuted and, and confused we become. Are we doing this right? Are we missing something? Are we doing it all wrong? 
and then someone shows up to your community, and you can tell this is a, this is a messenger, this is a, a man on a mission, a courier shows up, urgency on his face, letter in his hand, hands it to you, you get so excited, you, you, you open up the seal, uh, you look at the very first word, and the first word, you know this is an important letter, and it just says, Peter, you think, goodness, Peter. Peter, the apostle Peter, the one who was with Jesus, who was discipled by Jesus, trained by Jesus for three and a half years, preached for uh, Jesus. He has written us a letter, so you send out word uh, to all the community. Get the, get the church. Stir up the ecclesia. Get all the people. We, got some, we, we have something we need to gather together. We need to listen to this letter that Peter has written us because an apostle of Jesus is going to speak into our life and situation. He's going to tell us if we're doing anything wrong. He's going to hopefully enlighten us because this is a different difficult place we find ourselves in. And that's the context of 1 Peter. That's, that's what was taking place with a, a group of both Jewish and, and Gentile Christians who had uh, come to the faith. It had changed them so deeply. They found themselves aliens and strangers in a society that they were once uh, very comfortable in, suffering and being persecuted because of that. And the apostle Peter writes a letter. And we're just going to read the first two verses this morning. So I hope that you'll turn there. Go ahead and put your bookmark there because, like we said, uh, we'll be here for a few months. Uh, and today, uh, the goal today is really just to unpack uh, the introduction, the first two verses of this book, so that we get a good understanding of what God is trying to do um, through the Apostle Peter to them, also uh, through the Holy Spirit to us. So if you're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, say ready. God's word says this, they would have gathered together, and I would assume that there was so much excitement when a letter shows up from Peter, word gets out fast. You know, they send some kids. Kids are running around the alley saying, we get, like, get, get the Christians, get the church together. We need to go urgently. It's they're urgent. We need to go listen to this. We need to read this. The church all gathers together. You open up the scroll, and you read Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And collectively, you all take a deep breath, and then Peter begins to work his way through this book, training you to be a faithful exile in a world that is not your home. That's the purpose behind 1 Peter. Let's back up and work through a few things this morning. Uh, I know so many of you are uh, perhaps new to church, new to the Bible, and we always want to try to do the best we can to give some context so that you know uh, what we're reading and what it's saying and not, not take anything for granted. So the first word is Peter. Everybody say Peter. Let's get to know Peter a little bit. Peter is a fairly famous person, one of the most famous Christians uh, that has ever lived. Uh, it's probably outside of Jesus and Paul, one of the most influential um, humans, or Christians, but maybe even humans in the world, uh, was married, uh, was a fisherman, was somewhat of a small business owner. Okay? He, he potentially had a small fleet of fishing vessels where he was uh, day in and day out. That's how he made his living. Uh, and then one day, like, like minis full-time ministry was not on his radar. I didn't do seminary, wasn't heading in that way. He was fishing, and Jesus decides to give him an invitation to be a disciple uh, with this incredible moment of faith. 
faith, Peter sets down his nets, walks away from his, his job and his fleet and his uh, income, becomes a disciple of Jesus, uh, stepped out on faith. He's one of the 12 uh, disciples, uh, or we call them apostles, as Peter uh, calls himself here in verse 1. Uh, they, they, these were people that Jesus chose uh, to, to train them so that they might lead uh, this gospel movement we know of as the New Testament church. He was one of those 12. Uh, he was also of those 12. Jesus had three uh, that had a, a more access to him, somewhat of an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Peter was one of those. And if you look through the lists of the 12 in the New Testament, uh, every time Peter's the first one. He, he's the first one mentioned because he is the de facto leader for the apostles. He is the leader of the leaders. He gets to preach the very first New Testament sermon. So many of y'all know it so well. Acts chapter 2, a couple weeks after the resurrection, um, Pentecost is happening, uh, people from all over the Roman Empire there. Peter stands up who had had a moment of cowardice a couple weeks before. Remember the story? When this little girl comes up to him the night Jesus is crucified and says, aren't you one of his? He says, no. He just, he, he sells Jesus out because he was scared. Uh, the resurrection absolutely changed his life. Jesus is teaching it changed his life. The resurrection had changed his perspective. Uh, who, who had been a coward a few weeks earlier, now post-resurrection is standing preaching to thousands of people, many of which were responsible for murdering his leader, crucifying Jesus. He gets the honor to preach the first New Testament sermon. He preaches in Acts 2. He talks about the resurrection and that Jesus is a savior, invites people to repent and believe. 3,000 people that day become Christians. Uh, they are baptized. That's Peter. Uh, he would go on to write two books uh, of the Bible that would bear his name, First Peter, Second Peter. He would be a leader of the church. The first half of Acts is a lot about the story of Peter pushing the gospel message and the church out, uh, especially through Jewish people. Uh, he would eventually become a, a very persecuted person. Um, he would end up in a prison in Rome uh, under Roman Emperor Nero, uh, and he would be eventually uh, crucified. And when it came time for Peter to be crucified, he was adamant that he not be crucified the way Jesus was um, because he didn't deserve to die that death. So he was crucified uh, upside down. That's Peter. Um, I, I, just as a side note, I think probably a lot of Peter's old fishing buddies would have been really surprised that Peter was in ministry. They would have been like, you, Peter, like what on earth? Like we never saw that coming. Uh, and sometimes that's some of the most powerful uh, ministers, some of the most powerful people um, that God uses because it displays so much grace and patience sometimes. And some, some of you, that's your story. Your friends are like, oh, you're a Christian? You're leading a community group? What? So, sometimes those are the most profound people because it shows that God can use anyone. That's Peter. That's a little bit about Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Okay, everybody say elect exiles. Now, smile and say it again. Elect exiles. Th that is such an interesting way for Peter to, to start this off because he, he's trying to, to, to solidify in, in these people's hearts and minds just exactly what their identity was. And that's the two phrases that he chooses to describe them. Uh, they are elect, which means chosen, and they are exiles, which means they are in a foreign land that is not culturally, um, morally, politically their home. They were outsiders 
living there. There were exiles, elect exiles. Peter gets right to the point, reminds them of their identity, which if you're in Christ, this is your identity. You're an elect exile. You're chosen by God uh, to live your life out in a hostile environment to be salt and light left here as an exile. You know this, you've heard this, that this world is not our home. This is such an important book for us walking into the season to be reminded who we are as God's people who are elect exiles. Um, Flip back in your Bible, if you would, or you can follow along on the screen to John chapter 17. Uh, I I realize that we have landed here quite a few times over the years. This is uh, the prayer that Jesus gave in the garden uh, the night he was betrayed. Uh, But I think in order to understand uh, our identity as uh, elect exiles, that we need to understand that this is actually what Jesus prayed for. And this is what was expected. This didn't catch Jesus off guard for them. And it sure hasn't caught him off guard for us living this way. This was his plan all along to have a group of people that are called out to live different lives but left in a culture to be salt and light and to bear witness to Christ, though that will often come at a great cost. I want you to see the heart of Christ in in praying for this idea of uh, God saving people out only to send them back in as elect exiles. John 17, uh, verse 9 is where we're going to pick up. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying, and he, he says to his Father, I'm praying for them, okay, meaning Christians, believers. I'm not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He's saying, I'm not going to be here anymore. I am uh, cross, resurrection, ascension. I'm going away. I am purposefully leaving your people here. Skip to verse 14. I have given them these these. Exiles, these these elect exiles, uniquely chosen by God. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Do y'all see it? That this exile, like they are hated in their culture because the, 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 the Holy Spirit has moved them away in so many different ways. They are now no longer at home in a place where they used to be. I do not ask, verse 15, that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As, you sent, as God sent Jesus as a, as a missionary to planet Earth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. You can read yourself into that story. Sent you into the world. And for this, their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, meaning the Christians at the time, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, which is us. Jesus was praying for a group of people to be elect exiles, to be chosen by God out of a culture only to be sent back in. Um, I, I want to 
to dig into this, um, these two things uh, just for a minute. Just what does Peter mean when he says that we're elect, uh, which is uh, a kind of a, a, a difficult word, I think, for many people, a difficult idea uh, for a lot of people thinking through that. And we're going to spend a bit of time uh, digging into what does it truly mean that we're exiles. Okay, Peter calls us elect, which, uh, which means chosen. And I don't know why. I've, I've got some ideas, but a lot of people have a really difficult time with this idea that Christians are chosen by God, yet it is all throughout the scriptures, like beginning to end. It's there. In the Old Testament, God decided he was going to go choose Abraham, uh, Abram and, and, and create a nation out of him. And then all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, you have this God that just chooses to give grace that's unearned, uh, to, to do things, to rescue people, to save people. Um, all the way back to Abraham, you see it. I'm going to run through a few of these fairly quickly so that you know I'm not making this up. Ephesians chapter Chapter 1, it says of Christians, he, he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. John chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come unless the Father who draws, uh, who sent me draws them. Uh, John chapter 15, Jesus says, uh, you did not choose me, I chose you. Romans chapter 8 says, for those he foreknew, he predestined. Uh, this is just, it's all over the scriptures that if, if we're a Christian, our story is that we're, we're Christians because in God's grace and love and mercy and providence, he has chosen to do something with us. And, and the, the, the reason a lot of people struggle with this is because that seems to be at odds with free will. Does it not? Like it seems to be at odds with the idea that well, I, I, I feel like um, I, I have chosen to follow God. I've chosen to confess. I've chosen to believe. And, and, and if two things just, they, they, they seem to both be biblical, but they seem to not be able to fit together, sometimes we feel like we have to choose one. And I'm just saying we don't. Like two things, if God says they're true, they're true, whether they make sense in our minds or not. Uh, the great uh, British preacher, one of my favorites, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he said of this idea uh, of, of, of free will or, or, or God's choice of uh, man's responsibility for our sin versus God's sovereignty over us. He says there are two parallel lines, right? What's the definition of a parallel lines? They don't intersect. He says that there are two parallel lines that meet somewhere in eternity. I'm just saying this is one of the, not, not just one of the most consistent themes of Scripture, but one of the most beautiful things because we've brought nothing to the table. We have done nothing. This puts us in such a place of, of debt to God because he has done something. I was thinking about this a while back when my kids and I were fishing, uh, and, uh, and one of my kids reels this fish, and another one of the younger kids, won't mention any names, uh, just thinks, oh, this fish is swimming towards us and jumps in the boat. It's like, well, not really. Like, it, we reeled it in, right? Like, the idea of, like, I chose God. Like, well, really? But he was also reeling you in the whole time. Maybe that's not real helpful. Judging by the looks on your face, we'll move on. Um, like it just says it like you're elect God chose you if you're a Christian this is your story God pursued you God loved you God died for you God sent his spirit to draw you like he's reeling you in the whole time and you we can think we're like I'm choosing like maybe but you're on you're on a hook and a line and God's pulling you in he is he, he's wooing you he is he's moving in your heart that's the story of every Christian. How did we get to be here? God did something in our hearts. God has drawn us in. God has chosen us. 
chosen. He says the elect, uh, the elect. But then he says the elect exiles. And I want to look at four different things about that word exile that I think is going to be a theme for us uh, over this entire book's study, uh, mainly because of the, the moment in time that once again, every four years, we are walking into. Um, because I, 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 I'll, I'll do my best over the weeks to try to tease out how subtly the culture will try to force us into uh, certain molds um, culturally, morally, politically, and yet our identity has to be higher than that. Our allegiance has to be higher than a political party. Uh, and a lot of this, this season that we're walking into, we need to be reminded often that our primary identity is that we are chosen by God and we're exiles in this world. This is not our home. We should not fit nicely and neatly into certain categories. Uh, four things about exiles. I want to look at what is an exile. I want to look at their, meaning the original recipients of this book, their exile. I want to look at Jesus's exile, and then we will look at our exile. Number one, what is an exile? Very simply, uh, a stranger, a foreigner, a, a, a foreigner, or an alien. You can almost read into this a refugee of sorts uh, that is someone that is out of place in the place where they live. Uh, so like, geographically, an, an exile is in this place, but uh, all their, their values and their culture are very out of place. Foreigner, stranger, alien, exile. Uh, if you reach back to the Old Testament, uh, this would have been a primary way that God described the Jewish people who had uh, been living in the promised land in Israel, and then they are captured and they're removed and taken to exile in Babylon. They're still Jewish. That's their culture, their customs, their values, but they're living in Babylon and they do not fit in. That's the picture of a Christian in the world that we are exiles, that we're aliens and strangers. Uh, for a Christian, this world is not our primary home. Number two, what was their exile? Uh, why did Peter choose to use that word? And why do I think that that, I mean, it, it's so helpful We've talked about this so much over the years. To try to read yourself into the story and pretend that you were there, I just I get this feeling that that would be such a relief for these Christians that were so confused by following Jesus and enduring so much suffering and persecution. When when Peter just like solidifies, no, you're in exile. Like th th this is not your primary place. Th there must have been such a relief thinking oh, maybe I'm not doing it all wrong. Maybe this is something that should be expected. But their exile looked something like this. We've talked about it a little bit in the intro, but uh, many of them would have been Jewish. Many of them would have been Gentile. But regardless of that, they had placed their faith in Christ uh, and they had been called out, right? Called out where the things that they used to love, they don't love anymore. The things that they used to do, they don't do anymore. They are different. They have been called out. And because of that, as Jesus said in John 17, their world hates them. Um, I want to make a fairly bold comment, but I think that it's true and helpful. That if the, if the culture that we live in does not hate us for something we do say or believe, uh, there's probably an extent to which we're sellouts for Jesus 
Uh, if we just totally fit into the culture that we live in, something has gone wrong. Fair enough. Like they were exiles, they were changed, and they, th- th- that, that put them at odds with the culture um, that they lived in because their ultimate allegiance and obedience was to Christ. They were faithful to Christ, and yet that came at a cost. It came at a high cost for them, for a cost of lives, a cost of social pressure, a cost of uh, politically being pushed to the, to the fringes. That was, that, that was their story. That was their life. That's the context of First Peter. Now, I, I do want to look at a moment uh, at Jesus uh, because Jesus of all people understood, understands what it's like to live as an exile. Okay, not just as I think we get the idea on a, on a large scale that Jesus was from heaven, God living on earth with men that he created, that that makes him somewhat of an exile, obviously. Uh, but I think sometimes we miss the fact that Jesus actually lived and breathed and inhabited a very real place um, with a very real government, uh, with very real politicians, very real authorities, uh, very twisted religious religious leaders. Um, There were struggles for power. Uh, There were struggles and arguments over tradition. There was great corruption uh, in all sorts of areas. And there was an incredible pressure on Jesus to be conformed and to try to fit into those molds, even politically. This was true of Jesus. That there were there were a couple of different we could call them parties, so to speak, uh, in Jesus's landscape, the culture that he was living and teaching in. Uh, but but we can basically boil them down to the two main ones uh, are, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very different. You can think of them as two political party systems. Uh, ironically enough, both of them thought they were right. Both of them thought they were God's team. (laughs) Both of them thought the others were wicked, evil, and stupid. And they were trying to consistently figure out, Jesus, which team are you on? You with us or you with them? And he just constantly refused. He's like, I'm not going to let you categorize me that way because it's just not that simple. Uh, The the Pharisees uh, were kind of champions of the written law and the oral law. Uh, We know that uh, they were very legalistic. Jesus condemns them over and over and over uh, for missing the entire point of the law because they were so focused on it. you know, that would have been somewhat of their constitution. They were a lot of uh, blue-collar, really focused on the letter of the law type people. Uh, and then the Sadducees were very wealthy, aristocratic kind of insiders. Uh, and they had different uh, theological views, different political views. And they're constantly trying to force Jesus to decide which team he's going to be on. And he, he constantly... dodges the question or answers in such a way that he rises above them. Why? Because he was in exile. He didn't nicely, neatly fit into either side. In fact, the Pharisees, Sadducees hated each other, uh, did not get along, could not agree on anything except... When it came to Jesus, they they finally rallied around. Listen, we're going to have to reach across the aisle because he's got to go. Like that's what they decided at the end of the day. We're going to agree on that Jesus has to go. And so they would finally, could you imagine something so crazy that the Republicans and the Democrats like all come together and agree on something? Could you imagine that? That's what was happening. What were they agreeing on? Jesus is messing. He won't, he won't neatly, nicely fit in. He knew what it was like to, to be in exile, and it came, obviously, at a high cost to him. 
what he did, what he said, how he preached. He didn't nicely, neatly fit into a category. Uh, He understands what it's like to be in exile. And as someone said, I can't remember who said this, but like they were constantly trying to figure out which side Jesus was on. And someone said that Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. His identity rose above even the politics of his day. Number four, what does it mean for us as New Testament believers 2,000 years after these original recipients? Are we still in exile or should we actually fit nice and neatly into our culture and there be no cost to which we know the answer? Still, even in a place like America, even in a place like West Texas, the more we have our allegiance to Christ, oftentimes the less we fit in. Why is that? Because Jesus has designed it so that we are salt and light. Two things have to happen for us to be healthy and bear witness to Christ. We have to be in and around the culture, yet distinctly different from them. That means there's a cost for that. That, That's why Peter is writing this. A few things. He's writing this not just for them. This is a timeless book. I mean, the Holy Spirit writes things. They don't have expiration dates. So what, is, what was so helpful and practical to these first century believers around the edge of the Black Sea is so incredibly helpful and practical for Christians in 2020, what year is this, 24? Peter writes, he, he's trying to remind them their identity is that you're, you're chosen, you're elect exiles. He's trying to remind them to be faithful and that though suffering is expected, it is temporary for Jesus' followers. Uh, he's going to write that we should expect if we want to be like him, then we will often be treated like him. He's going to offer wisdom, encouragement to help us live as faithful exiles whose primary identity is as sons and daughters of God left here to bear witness to him. And then he includes the full gospel and the full trinity in his introduction, which he'll unpack a bit later. Uh, He says the foreknowledge of God. Like you see God the Father outside of time, knowing what he's wanting to do. And then it says that the sanctification of the Spirit, that the Spirit's doing something in believers to, uh, to, to refine us, to shape us, to chisel us, to mold us into the very image of Christ. He says, for obedience to Jesus. He doesn't say that this happens from obedience or because we're obedient, but God in his foreknowledge sent the Holy Spirit to make us look like Jesus. That's the end game for us. You see God the Father, you see the Holy Spirit, you see Jesus all at work, even in this intro uh, of Paul's beautiful explanation of the gospel. So here's what I would invite you to do. This is so difficult, but to try to do what I would assume those first century Christians did is to not try to fit Jesus into their current molds, but to rethink what does it mean for my primary allegiance to be to Christ? Let that then dictate how we live out our lives as faithful exiles. The world needs that. Our culture needs that. Our city needs that. So that's where we're going in this series. I'll invite you to bow your head, uh, to take a few minutes, if you would, to, uh, to close your eyes and just to not just listen, but to pray with me, and that just as, as the Holy Spirit empowered them and gave them wisdom and fortitude to do that, that God would give us wisdom to know how to be faithful in this time that we have, Father. We thank you that you have 
done a work in our hearts that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir up in us a deep devotion for you. God, even in this room, that you would be calling and wooing and drawing people into you, that you would speak very clearly to them in their heart that you are who they were made for, that you are seeking them, you want them, you, will, you died for them, you've invited them, and I pray that you would help us then as a church, as we're growing together in, in the gospel, we're growing together in Christ's likeness, uh, and we suffer um, different levels of, of persecution for that, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. God, remind us that we do have a home that we are passing through here. We have a mission to accomplish and a God to serve, but we do have an ultimate home where we will belong. I pray that you would constantly remind us to lean into that, to long for that. God, I pray that this series would serve you well and that we would bear Christ's name well in our culture. We love you. pray this all in Jesus' name.